This evening we want to give our attention to Lord's Day 2, God's Word summarized in Lord's Day 2. So we want to first turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and we'll be looking at the first 20 verses of the third chapter of Romans, and then we'll turn in our Heidelberg Catechisms in the Forms and Prayer book to page number 202, and we'll responsively read Lord's Day 2. Under the heading of Our Misery, Why We Need the Gospel. Our misery, and that's why we need the Gospel. But first we give our attention to Romans chapter 3, verses 1-20. through 20. The Apostle Paul writes, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom, of, uh, the venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And that's where we'll end God, the reading of God's Word this evening. And then we'll turn to the Word of God summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 2. That's on page 202 of your Heidelberg Catechism, your Forms and Prayers book. So I will read the question and together we'll respond in unison. The instructor asks us, how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. 
What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22, 37-40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by my nature to hate God and my neighbor. Well, dear disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, the first step in our journey to Gospel comfort is that of our misery, our guilt, our sins. As you know, especially if you're in catechism class, the Heidelberg Catechism is broken up into three distinct sections. Lord's Days 2-4 through four are concerned with our misery due to the fall, followed by Lord's Days 5-31, through 31, which are our deliverance by God's grace in Christ. And then Lord's Days 32-52 through 52 are our response of gratitude for so great a salvation. For our young children here, a helpful way to remember this is sin, salvation, service. Or guilt, grace, gratitude. All three components, says the Heidelberg Catechism, are necessary necessary for us to know in order to live Christian lives. Do not miss what I just said. All three are required. That means we start with everyone's favorite subject. Misery. Sin. And our condemnation. And I already know what you're thinking. Oh good, I will invite my neighbors next week. That's a joke. Of course, there's always a faction of the church that also says, I don't come to church to hear about sins. I come to church to hear about the Gospel grace of Jesus Christ. We all hate the subject. What we love is the cross. We love the empty tomb to sing of the wondrous grace and mercy of Christ. Why must we dwell on the subject of sin, of misery, of guilt? Listen to this answer because it's very important. The reason we must dwell upon sin and misery is because without the true knowledge of one's sin and misery, there is no salvation. The Bible teaches us that the absence of misery over sins, the absence of guilt over our unrighteousness, equals the absence of salvation. The Apostle John says in in his epistle, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
Two verses later, he says this likewise. He says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him to be a liar, and His Word is not in us. What this means, beloved congregation, is that to know your sins, to be aware of your misery, is in fact a blessing from God Almighty. Think of it another way. If you were ignorant of a disease within your body, would you seek out a cure? Likewise, those who are ignorant of their sins do not seek out a deliverer. To know our sins should create in the Christian a desire to be free from them. And when we know the depths of our sins, it makes us all the more thankful to Christ. To know the wretchedness of our sins makes the Gospel more glorious. It makes Christ's work more magnificent. It makes our comfort more secure. To put it another way, we cherish Christ more when we know that we are sinners. Because we know how much we need Him. We only know how much we need Him in light of God's law. And so our theme this morning from Lord's Day 2 and Romans chapter 3 is simply this. No one is righteous. That's why we need the Gospel. No one is righteous. That's why we need the Gospel. And I want to show you that in three points. The law reveals that all have sinned. The Scriptures testify that no one is righteous and law-keeping cannot justify the sinner. But let's look first at our first point. The law reveals that all have sinned. You see that in the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 3. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. You see, from Romans 1, chapter 18 to 3, chapter 20, the Apostle Paul has been addressing the relationship with Jews and Gentiles in light of God's wrath. The Heidelberg Catechism is broken up into guilt, grace, gratitude, and likewise is the book of Romans broken up into guilt, grace, gratitude. You see where the Catechism got it from. Verses chapter 1 to 18 to 3.20 is concerning guilt before God. From 3.21 to chapter 12 is concerning God's grace or sorry, chapter 11, and then 12 to 16 is concerning how to respond to God's grace. But in chapter 1, verse 18, if you just flip one page over, the Apostle Paul says that the wrath of God is coming against all ungodliness. Three times in this passage, the Apostle Paul is talking about people who are under sin and practice unrighteousness. Three times he says, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. And his point is, is that God is utterly impartial when it comes to judgment. What that means, boys and girls, is that when we stand before God one day, He will not judge us based on whether you're a man or a woman. He doesn't judge differently if you are young or old or black or white or a jew or excuse me a jew or a gentile 
in the last judgment, God will judge us all on the basis of what we've done, not who we are. So in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, there is no favoritism with God. Or in 2.29, he says, a person is a Jew inwardly and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. Now this may be standard fare to those of you who were raised and weaned on the canons of Dort. But you need to think this evening as a first century Jew. To the Jew, they would be asking questions like this. Are you saying, Paul, that we Jews are no longer God's chosen people? Are you saying that God's promises to us are no more? Or that God's righteousness, of which Israel's hope is to be based, has been wiped out, it's been nullified in Jesus Christ? Is Jesus a good guy or a bad guy to the Jews? They had the promises, they had the covenant, and Paul is saying, no one is righteous? How do we make sense of this? to the Jews of the Old Testament. He's asking this question in verse 1. What does he say? What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? He's essentially asking a bold question. Are God's promises still true in Christ? Or is there a new way to find favor with God? Look at Paul's response. He says there's much in every way. They were adopted by God. They experienced the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, the patriarchs. From them will come the Messiah. But he focuses on the fact that they received the oracles of God. To receive the oracles of God, we're going to put it like this this evening. What they received is the divine deposit of salvation. They received from old God's sovereign proclamation of Christ. That's the benefit. But do, don't, do we not know, dear congregation, that the possession of God's Word means nothing if you don't believe? How many people do we know who have Bibles on their shelf? But it doesn't benefit you if you don't pick it up. It doesn't benefit you if you don't read it and learn of and love Jesus Christ. See, the Jews of old had the oracles of God, but what did they do with it? What did they do with that deposit, that proclamation of salvation in Christ. And look what the Apostle Paul says. He uses four rhetorical devices to make his point. And the first point is very simple. He says it's not God who has been unfaithful in sending Christ. It's actually God's people who have been unfaithful 
Look at the first half of verse 3. He says, what if some were unfaithful? And just to be clear, that some becomes all in verse 9. He says, if we experience sin, that means we've all been unfaithful and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 4, all are liars. We are the unrighteous ones, verse 5. And we are filled with falsehood, verse 7. The fallen human response to God's law has not been righteous law keeping. All these I have done since my youth. The fallen response to God's law is that we have sinned. Who among us is is not a sinner? Who among us has not been angry with our neighbor? Who among us has not lusted? Who among us has always thought selflessly and put God first? No, says the Apostle Paul. We're all guilty. Jew and Gentile alike. Nobly born or poor. Or even in our context, baptized or not. All people are under sin. And the law is what exposes that. It's not to make us proud. It's not to make us righteous. It should make us humble and seek God's salvation, His mercy. But the second point that Paul makes in these rhetorical questions is it's not we who have been faithful, but he says, look, it's God who has been faithful. You see, the pressing question to the Apostle Paul in this grouping of rhetorical questions is actually quite profound. You see, to the Jews, God had made promises of grace. Promises of salvation. He gave them the law, but Paul is saying, no one is justified by the law. So, is God a liar? Is God credible? But the second point of these rhetorical questions is simply this. God is faithful. He ramps up the the argument When he says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Again, this is a rhetorical question, hypothetical question, but he's essentially posing, painting a picture for us, I should say, where he's saying, what if everyone who ever lived declared that God was faithless? What if everyone who ever lived said that God wasn't true? He says God would be found true. And everyone else would be found true. A liar. What the Apostle Paul says is God has never deceived anyone. In fact, it's always been His purpose of salvation to send Christ. It was always His purpose in the covenants to give them Christ. To be circumcised of the heart rather than to be circumcised of the flesh. And when we stand before God's judgment, if we reject His Son, it is not He who will be at fault, but it is us who will be at fault. And then, Paul is actually quoting something here. You know, there's a Bible character who experienced this very vividly. David learned this lesson. When he, in 2 Samuel, it says he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And when she was found to be with child, confronted by Nathan, or sorry, when she was found to be with child, it says rather than confessing, he murders Uriah, her husband. And in 2 Samuel 12, when Nathan confronts him and 
In Psalm 51, it talks, it's Nathan, or excuse me, it's David's prayer. How about his confession of sin? And what does he say? He says, I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your eyes. And listen to this, for you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. That's what Paul is quoting. David is saying that even though I sinned, even though I failed, even though I have been unfaithful, when I stand before God, I find God faithful and God to be just. Paul is making this same point in these first seven verses. It is not God who has been faithful, and when we stand before Him in the judgment day, it is we who will be found unfaithful, even us, the Jews. God's covenant people. That is that the law reveals not that we are righteous. The law does not reveal that we are faithful. But the law shows us that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the questions sort of get progressively worse as time goes on. Well, should we just sin? Since the law reveals our sin and God is just in condemnation. And twice the Apostle Paul says, by no means. By no means. In Greek, me genoito. It's a very strong word. It means, may it never be. He says, even the law's condemnation, even though the law condemns, God still has a good purpose in the law. And we'll get to that in a few moments. But little boys and girls, pay attention to me for one moment. You might be able to hide the fact that you are skipping school from mom and dad unless you're homeschooled. Husbands and wives, we can try to conceal our lust. We can try to conceal our anger from one another. You can hide your sin from the elders on the house bazook. You can try to hide from the world in the dark. But every one of us will stand before God one day. Every one of us will be measured according to His holy standard, which is the law. We will stand before the Lord. And there will be no exceptions. Whether you're baptized or not. Whether you've made profession of faith or not. We will all have to stand before the Lord. There is no escaping His all-seeing eye. That should fill us with holy fear and make us cry out in great need for redemption. A second application here is, listen to this, is that God will always be faithful to His Word. There is never a point where God will nullify His promises, even though we may not understand the fulfillment of them. But when we find what we suppose is a problem in the Word, like the Jews of old did, let us be reminded that when we find a supposed problem, the problem is not with God. The problem is not with His Word. 
The problem is with us. Christian people are called to be people who take the posture of humility. Who pray for the grace to think God's thoughts. To love His ways and conform to His image. There is no tension in God's Word that can't be resolved by His grace. The law of God serves as a mirror to show us the unfaithfulness of our own hearts. But secondly, we see that the Scriptures testify that no one is righteous. Do you know, dear congregation, what the Bible teaches concerning sins? If you were to go out on the street this evening and you were to ask the average run-of-the-mill person, what does the Bible teach about sins? I would think they might say, well, God loves everyone. God accepts everyone. And I might not be the most righteous person, but surely I'm a good person. Surely I'll get into heaven. But what does the Bible say? Verse 9 makes it quite clear. The Bible says that the whole world is under the judgment of God. The whole world is under the judgment of God. And that is the accusation leveled in verse 9. Look at this accusation. God has sat upon His judgment bench. He has witnessed the sin of His creation. He has seen the idolatry and the false worship. He has seen the blasphemy and the disrespect of parents. He has seen hatred and murder and adultery and pornography, theft and lying, and God's verdict upon His creation is that we are guilty. Jew and Gentile alike, without distinction, all are under sin. Now what may, you may find interesting is that in Paul's whole section on guilt, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, this is the first time in Romans he says the word Sin. Hamartia in Greek. But what is sin? Louis Burkhoff, the great Calvin seminary theologian, says this Sin is opposition to God in a transgression of his law, which constitutes guilt. Close quote. And beloved congregation, sin is everywhere in the Bible. The Bible is nearly as full of stories about sin as it is full of stories about God's grace. From accounts to petty embezzlement in Acts 5 to child sacrifice in Jeremiah 7. From verbal abuse in 2 Samuel 6 to homicidal rape in Judges 19. And it is the great problem of the Bible reader, a reality that we must grapple with, is that we are all sinners. And that no one escapes this stain of sin. Paul says in 3 verse 22, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But notice the Apostle Paul's words in verse 9, he uses this terminology With geography, it's not just sin, but we're under sin. That is, sin is something of which we experience a bondage of. Something that is tyrannical. 
Sin wraps us up. Entangles its victims. Jesus said in John 8.34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Paul says in Galatians 3, the whole world is a slave to sin. Sin has a great burden. It has a great pressure on us. That is, it's deadly to us. And the verdict of God is that all of us, everyone here, is a sinner. And look at the evidence. The Apostle Paul says, no one, look at this, look at the uh, Word of God with me. He says, no one is righteous. Not one. There is none who understands. There is not one who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You see the theme there, don't you? No one. The power of sin is so all-encompassing that the whole world is under this judgment. Notice he goes on. He starts quoting Scriptures that have the theme of the body. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You, you see this. Now he's reflecting the totality of the person. Throats, lips, tongues, mouth, feet, eyes. The whole person is involved with sin. There is, I guess what you could say, is no good thing among us. According to our own devices, each and every one of us here would be as sinfully full of sin as we could be. Now I recognize that we also live in a time and in a place when many people make the assumption, they say, well, the Old Testament, that has to do with God's law and God's judgment, but we are New Testament Christians. We live in the Spirit of God's grace. But notice what the Catechism mentions in question 4. What does God's law require of us? And it points us to Christ. How does Jesus Christ feel about the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If you read Luke's account of Jesus' summary of the law, It says a young man came to Him and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you know what Christ's response is? Not believe in Me. He says this. 10.26. Luke 10.26. What is written in the law? Verse 28. Do this and you will live. What is He saying? In Jesus' exposition of the law, He doesn't say the law is done away with. He doesn't say the law is no good anymore. It's nullified now. No, He says you still need a perfect love for God. You still need a love where you forsake everything outside of yourself and everything inside of yourself for God. 
You must exist for God alone and cleave to Him alone in order to serve and to praise and to glorify God alone. You need to do it without the least inclination to evil, without the slightest sinful thought or deviation of the heart, and tandem with that, you need to love your neighbor. Beloved, let us be clear that Jesus doesn't loosen the demands of the law by a single hair's breadth. He very much affirms the Old Testament principle that you must be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. There is no avoiding it. The Scriptures of both the Old and New Testament, the God of Sinai and the God of the Mount of Olives, both say there is no one righteous. I can see that you're all loving this sermon. But an application for you before we get to the good news is that the great error of the Jews was that they were relying on their circumcision. They were relying on their Jewishness as the basis as to why God should accept them into heaven. But in many ways, this is what Romans is about. Righteousness is by faith in Christ and not by birth. Not by the works of the law. But it can also be a temptation for a Christian to trust in their baptism. I'm going to heaven because I'm a part of blank denomination. without having true faith. The Apostle Paul is saying, if you trust in your baptism alone, just the water, if you trust in your denomination, you might as well be trusting in the law. It's a work. It's a... Per, it's a how would you say? It is a status in life that you are expecting to get you into God's presence. But his final point in verses 19-20, through 20, you see this also in question 5 of your catechism, is that law-keeping cannot justify sinners. You see, as we stand in the courts of God and the verdict comes to us as guilty, look at the response to the verdict in verse 19. How, what do people say in response? Nothing. Throughout this chapter, there's this question and answer, question and answer. But when we finally get to verse 19, we're standing in the courts of God. God declares us guilty. What can we say? Nothing. Because we know that God is right. I have sinned. I have fallen short. Every time the law says, Thou shalt not, the soul that is touched by this Holy Spirit cries out, but I have. And I'm guilty. I screwed it up. I botched it. I failed. Beloved, is this your confession? Is it the confession of your hearts that by your nature you are inclined to hate God and your neighbors? Because as humans, we tend towards a works-based righteousness, don't we? 
that somehow, some way, I can earn my way to heaven and I can climb the celestial ladder and be in the presence of God because of what I did. But Paul says in verse 20, there isn't a single human being holy enough. There is no human being righteous enough who can somehow merit or earn their way to salvation because the law cannot justify. Verse 20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. To be someone who is just means to be perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, and never failing in a single point of the law. Notice that the Apostle Paul speaks in the future tense here. Meaning, no one will ever be justified by the law. There will be, never be a human being who is born under the curse who will ever be perfectly and perpetually righteous and holy in his sight, in the sight of God, because all have sinned and fallen short. But here's the good news, dear Christian. He says in verse 20 that that was never the law's purpose. He says no flesh can be justified by the law, for by the law we are convinced of sin. What this means is that the law, even though it's an advantage to the Jews and condemns us by bringing sin clearly to our knowledge and showing us that we deserve wrath for sins. But he says its design, its purpose, was never to give you life. The law wasn't given so that you could do this and get to heaven and earn your salvation. The Apostle Paul says the point point of God's law is to convince you that you are a sinner. And so that you would renounce your own righteousness. And instead of trying to justify yourselves, you would look to God for justification. The resounding note of the book of Romans is not, in fact, that all men are guilty but that God justifies guilty men. That is, in Jesus Christ, He pronounces those whom the law condemns as just. That they have perfect righteousness. That they have perfect holiness. That they have never failed in Christ. He imputes And we'll get into that in Lord's Day 23. That means He gives righteousness to those without works and without righteousness. So to the Apostle Paul then, the law is to lead people to renounce their dependence upon themselves, to renounce anything done by them, and to cast themselves wholly on God for acceptance in what Christ has done. As you go through the book of Romans, you come to this one single point. Law-keeping cannot justify the sinner, but Christ can. 
And so the law, in many ways, is a preparation for the Gospel. We need to be convinced of sin. We should be humbled by its power. We should be silenced under God's conviction of guilty, but also prostrated at the feet of Christ. We know that we can't satisfy the law's demand. And so, that if I'm ever to be saved, it must be by the merit and power of someone else. See, one of the best examples of this is in the New Testament. When Jesus is relating a story about a Pharisee standing in the temple of God with a tax collector, the Pharisee in front of the tax collector says, God, I thank You that I'm not a tax collector. That I'm righteous. Essentially saying, I thank You that I've obeyed the law and that I will be in Your presence forever. And the, fair, and the tax collector, with eyes lifted up to heaven, beats his breast. And what does he say? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, one looked at the law as a way to get to heaven. The other looked at the law as the revealing of his sin to look to God for mercy and to ask Him for righteousness. What does Christ say of that tax collector in Luke? He says the one went home condemned, the Pharisee, and the tax collector went home justified. Perfectly righteous, holy, and never failing in the law. But he needed to know of his sin. He needed God's law to reveal his sin in order to look to God for righteousness. So in conclusion, I ask you this question, dear congregation, do you have this blessed knowledge of your own misery? Let us realize this evening that true and lasting comfort doesn't come from pride, our own righteousness, our own law-keeping, but comfort comes to those who know of their need to be consoled who know of their shortcomings. We need to see our misery through the law, but let us take comfort this evening in knowing that for Christians, it is just the first step of our journey to Gospel comfort in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give You thanks this day for Your law which comes from You. And You are good. And even though the verdict of God when we, when we are measured according to the law is guilty, we know that You yet have good purposes in it. You use that very law to lead us to Jesus Christ. He satisfies our souls. He is our law keeper. Even though we have failed, He has perfectly upheld it. And we thank You, Lord, that we are considered in Him righteous, holy, and perfect. We ask, Heavenly Father, that You would give us the grace to believe these things. In Jesus' name, Amen.